In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Tonight we remember together the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. That's a theological word that means a glorious metamorphosis. Jesus shows himself as the radiant Son of God. It looks like lit magnesium, you know, bright, lighting up the night. Glory is a word from the Bible that is used to describe a nearly indescribable phenomenon. Uh, God's glory refers to a visible manifestation of his own presence uh, when God is unfiltered. And the goal of God's glory is that it would be widespread and fully known. This is why Habakkuk says that the earth will be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's the goal. We haven't reached the goal. I find that that's not true of our current experience, really. Uh, Life as we know it now is habitually inglorious, uh, punctuated by either tragedy or banality, and I'm not sure which is worse. Think about the non-tragic elements of your life, all the spills, the laundry, the dusting. I think pledge, by the way, you know, pledge, attracts dust. I think it's a racket. But, you know, it's the same thing day after day, the same kind of arguments, the same apologies offered because of the same sins, and and sometimes tragedy is mixed in with it. I had a very hard week. I don't know, some of you have had a hard week too. I got a call on Friday night uh, that a relative of mine had overdosed for the 23rd time and was rushed to the hospital. I went to see her. He was unconscious. I sat there. You know, it was, it was in the same hospital room. You know, I, I know the room. I know the hall. I know the doctor by name. And um, I thought about how both tragic and banal it was. Sometimes when you're in those situations and those tragedies, you run out of emotion, run out of feeling. And I was wondering where the light is. Is there ever going to be any light? Is there real recovery for this person? Is there any any, uh, glory to come? And uh, maybe you've been there as well. Life as it is now can be tragic and banal, but there were some men a long time ago who had their inglorious lives broken into by a foreign glory. They saw light. First, I want to talk about the hour of glory. The hour of glory. Because the timing of the transfiguration of Jesus' own glorious metamorphosis, the timing is really important. We have to know what comes immediately before the transfiguration to understand the profundity of the transfiguration. Before the transfiguration, immediately before it, was one of the most furious confrontations in the entire New Testament. Jesus asks his disciples a pointed question. 
At first, he's indirect, and later he becomes direct. At first, he asks, what does the New York Times say about me? And then he gets more focused. Who do you say that I am? They hem and haw, they give certain theological answers that are not insulting, but not on target. And Peter, precocious apostle that he is, offers the right answer. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus says you're right. And then goes on to expand what being Christ means. And for Jesus, being Christ is a nosedive into oblivion. It, it, Peter is angry, rebukes Jesus, and then Jesus calls him Satan. So, it's a rather hot scene, and Jesus concludes that confrontation with the opening line of our passage. There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. As a brief aside, I want to say that uh, the coming of the kingdom of God isn't only referring to what could be called the end of days or the ultimate apocalypse. There were early critical scholars who saw this passage and others like it and concluded, see, Jesus and St. Paul both envisioned that the second coming would occur in the first generation of believers. It didn't. Therefore, uh, the whole thing is fraudulent. That's not what the coming of the kingdom of God means. The coming of the kingdom of God is any time in which God's ultimate purposes are fully unveiled and unobscured so that people can see what's occurring. And I want to um, conclude that Peter, James, and John were the ones he was referring to in this passage. There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see, opta in Greek, optometrist, see with their eyes, the kingdom of God. Now the hour of the transfiguration is important because Jesus just made, for the first time, the dismal announcement about his grisly death. The first time the disciples ever had heard about the cross as it related to their Christ. And in order to give them some assurance in light of that disorienting announcement, he takes them up a mountain. And then we not only have an hour of glory, it stands in stark contrast to Jesus' own dark announcement, we see the face of glory. The face of glory. Verse 17. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. A few things. Jesus takes witnesses. In the Old Testament, uh, two or three witnesses were required in order for a testimony to be regarded as trustworthy. So he takes witnesses who witness something entirely new. Unabashed glory. Uh, Jesus, the Jewish carpenter, uh, professor, prophet, morphed into the meridian sun before their eyes. He was unveiled as the glorious God of Israel. His face shone with divinity. Um, this is reminiscent of an important Old Testament scene involving Moses, 
in, in Moses' life, he became God's secretary, if you will. He took notes. He heard the word and then wrote it down. That was part of his life. He had conversations with God back and forth. But he wanted something more. He wanted an even closer relationship. And so at one point, he asked not to hear, but to see. He said, I want to see your face. And God says to him, no one shall see my face and live. But there is a rock nearby with a, with a crevice in it. I want you to look through that, and you will see the afterglow of glory, but you will not see my face. So Moses does this, and what happens to Moses' face? It is in some ways transfigured. But Jesus is not like Moses here, because Moses reflected the glory of another. Uh, when the disciples look at the transfigured Jesus, they are seeing not a reflection of somebody else's glory. They are seeing the source of glory. They are seeing the one who looked at Moses on the other side of the rock. They are seeing for the first time, if you will, the face of God. Something forbidden from Moses that they now get to see. And there's more than sight. There's a voice. A voice that comes from the glory cloud. And the voice says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now notice that the Father on the Mount of Transfiguration speaks nearly the same words, the identical words, at Jesus' own baptism. He speaks words of belovedness, of belonging, and of sonship in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and now in the middle. Why? Why does he repeat this, nearly the same words right here at this point? It's because there is a shift now. There is a shift in Jesus' message and in his ministry. The shift is, uh, is the nosedive. Up until this point, Jesus was growing in popularity, was uh, healing and teaching about the uh, bustling and growing kingdom of God. But from this point on, he'll be speaking more and more about his dismal uh, and, and grisly end. And, and so there's a shift in Jesus' focus, and God repeats the words about his son because, if you, if you will, the dismal Jesus is the same as the baptismal Jesus. This isn't plan B. God is here admonishing the disciples, to listen to his son, yes, of course, in general, to everything he teaches, but especially as he speaks about his own demise. That is, listen to him because he is speaking to you as my son about the very thing that makes you suspicious about whether or not he's my son. So we see the face of glory and the voice confirming that, in fact, this one who is showing you his own divinity is my own son. Lastly, we see companions of glory. Verse 3. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. So we have two holy men, one from the 13th century B.C. and the other from the 9th century B.C. Uh, notice, and it's an important point, they're still alive. That there is a sense, even in Judaism, of life after death, that the essence of these people is still with God, 
and God brings them back to this terrestrial plane so that they can not only appear with, but speak with Jesus. Luke's Gospel tells us that they're speaking with Jesus about his, his death in Jerusalem. And I think that Moses and Elijah, if I can put it this way, and this cheekily, are good candidates for God's selection. I think he did very well, and I'll tell you why. Um, because both Moses and Elijah had glory experiences. They were unique in the Old Testament. They interacted with glory. Of course, God meets Moses on Mount Sinai, speaks with Moses, interacts with Moses, and then Moses' face shines. And also, Elijah meets God on Mount Sinai. Another mountain, right? Mount Sinai meets him, and, uh, and God reveals uh, himself to Elijah. Uh, some translations say, in a, in a still small voice, it's probably better translated a pulverizing noise. He receives a revelation of God in that way. So they encounter glory. Both Moses and Elijah also had strange departures from the world. Moses died, but they don't know what happened to his body. Yet there's a lot of speculation in the intertestamental period about what happens to Moses' body, so much so that some rabbi writes a book called The Assumption of Moses in which it's believed that Moses' body was miraculously translated into heaven. But we know uh, from the biblical text that Elijah was carried, translated from this world in a fiery chariot. That was the image. And so both of them have strange departures from this world, so it's not surprising that they have a strange reappearance. And lastly, most importantly, Moses and Elijah are representatives of the majority of the Old Testament canon. Moses is the bold leader of the Exodus who inscribes the law. Elijah is the quintessential prophet. So picture this. At the transfiguration, you have earthly witnesses, Peter, James, and John. You have the witness of the Father. And then you have these heavenly witnesses who come back from the dead to speak with Jesus, who come to see the glory of the Lord revealed, something that they never saw fully with their own eyes, they too now can see. And then there's Peter, who has to ruin the moment. He says unto them, I have a great idea. Camp gear. We need camp gear. Tents. This is great. Now, before, you know, when I would read this passage, I'm thinking, oh, Peter, there you go again, in your momentary hysteria where you say something profoundly stupid and and then we say well peter just like us because we're sometimes stupid and anyway you know but peter is often the the hero the anti-hero and he's every man and every woman and everything else but i don't think that's what this is about i think in a sense peter doesn't know what he's saying but in another because he doesn't understand the gravity of the moment but if you understand it from his perspective he wants to create something good remember he was the one who just fouled up he was the one who rebuked Jesus when Jesus was trying to communicate his mission to his disciples. And now he's trying to do something good. And he's trying to build structures to capture the moment. Why? Because Peter thinks that this is the apocalypse. Peter thinks this is the end. Remember, nobody has ever seen God's glory before. Nobody's ever seen his face, and now they do. And moreover, there's Elijah. And there is an Old Testament prophecy that says, before the day of the Lord comes, you will meet Elijah. And there he is. And so they're at the mountain. They're seeing a theophany. 
God is appearing to them, speaking. There's the prophet hailing the day of the Lord, and it's all over. All of our pain, all of the hell that we walk through, it's all done. I mean, Jesus is the Messiah, the Son, everything is now great, and we can build permanent structures. And so he wants the moment to last. Nobody in this church has ever seen the glory of God. But think about the happiest moment of your life, whether it was when you fell in love with somebody you were dating, or when you got married, or when you had your first child, or when you um, made a new friend who has stayed with you through thick and thin, when you got ordained, when you had your child baptized, uh, when you finally graduated and you know, burned all your notes or whatever. I mean, but some moment when everything was felt right, things came together for once, when you couldn't even find anything to complain about. Wouldn't you want to live in that moment forever? And here's Peter. He wants to stay. Who can blame him? And yet, the glory doesn't last. Moreover, the glory could not last. The glory could not last until Jesus Christ accomplished what he, Moses, and Elijah predicted. Before the glory could last, he had to perish. That would be the only way to secure glory for the whole world. Preview of coming attraction. So we have the transfiguration, this glorious metamorphosis, this flash, this moment of flaming magnesium when glory encircles history's protagonist. In the lectionary, which is a collection of selected texts to be read on Sundays throughout the church calendar, the transfiguration reading always comes as the last lesson read before Lent begins. Why? Well, the assumption of Holy Scripture is that Lent is life. Lent is a season of barrenness. Lent is a season where we remember and focus on things that make our lives troubled. And the creators of the lectionary thought, if we're going to face into all of that, we need a boost before we go into that territory. We need a little transfiguration. And I want to consider how Peter, in his autumn years, thinks about the transfiguration, writes about the transfiguration, and how he believed it would continue to affect his audience. Fascinating, as an old man, he writes this epistle, verse 18 of your epistle lesson. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, that is, after the death and resurrection, the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Peter is saying that the transfiguration and what is implicit in it offers us two sources of light. The first is small and immediate amidst a context of darkness. It's a lamp. The second is vast and universal. It's the sunrise. You can have a lamp for a while, and then you'll have the sunrise, and you won't need the lamp anymore. He tells us what the lamp is, this small light that we carry close to ourselves. The lamp is, according to Peter, the prophetic word. 
about Jesus, the scriptural testimony about the Christ. This is why the unseen Father's admonition, this is my beloved Son, listen to him, falls not only upon the ears of the disciples, but ours as well. To put it clearly, Jesus has no human parallel to intelligence and emotional and spiritual maturity. The scriptures testify to Jesus, and the only way that we can have light, illumination, here and now, is staying close and surrendering our ears to the foreign voice of the Christ. We have a lot of voices coming into our lives. Netflix, from Facebook, from our friends. Some of them are wise, some of them are foolish, some of them are more than foolish. But there is another voice uh, that we can surrender our ears to, the voice of the one who speaks with unparalleled intelligence and maturity. When he speaks about the heart, when he speaks about the human condition, when he speaks about money, when he speaks about marriage, when he speaks about friendship, when he speaks about the single life, when he speaks about judgment, when he speaks about himself bearing judgment, when he tells you, as he told Peter, that he has to die to do his job, we ought to listen, to surrender our ears to that prophetic word. And if we do, we'll discover that we have enough light to get through. It's still a dark world. We're still going to trip. We will still get hurt. But we will see some things that we would not see otherwise. That is our light, our lamp in a dark place. But there's a sunrise to come, Peter tells us. The day will dawn. Philippians 3 puts it this way, unfolds our future in words of glory. He, Jesus, will transform our lowly bodies to be like the body of his glory. The glory will no longer be something that terrifies, i.e. you cannot see the face of God and live. Glory will be warmth. Glory will enfold you. Glory will give you, if you will, a transfiguration in which you will become yourself at last. President John Adams, the founding father of yesteryear, died on the 4th of July. Died on the same day, in fact, moments after his friend Thomas Jefferson. It was rumored that on John Adams' deathbed, he began to speak to unseen guests, family members who had passed into glory years earlier. He was speaking to his son, who died of alcoholic poisoning, and speaking to his beloved wife. He never really recovered from that particular loss. Adams seemed to be peering into glory, into the deep beyond, and immediately before his dying breath, Adams is said to have beamed a great smile and uttered loud words about his friend Jefferson, who had died only moments before. He said, Thomas Jefferson survives. And then he died. What was he seeing? I don't know. What do we make of that story? I'm not entirely sure, but I do know this. The point for us, who are in Christ Jesus, is that no matter what happens, and how this story ends, you survive. 
you make it, after all. Because of the divine Christ, all is glory and all is light. So whether tonight you are hungering for the light or simply tired of the inglorious life, hold on just a little longer. Your lamp shines, your dawn will most certainly arrive, and the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Amen.